Welcome to this week's episode. Ep <laughs> Beer is already clearly showing that it was a bad idea. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to this week's episode of <laughs> Apparently I'm Australian today. We're just going to have to deal with that for the rest of the show. Um, welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by demonstrating that it is impossible to go on a tangent. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from dark Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, coming from dark Princeton, New Jersey, is my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going? Hey, Charles. Doing doing very well this uh this lovely frigid evening. Yes, I say that it is dark Washington, D.C. and dark Princeton, New Jersey, not because Trump's administration <laughs> is still in power, although that is also a reason to say that it is dark in D.C., but because we are doing a rare nighttime recording of our podcast. And to celebrate that, rather than our normal caffeinated beverages, we have decided to pop open some beers and relax while talking about the football games that were on the television this night. Uh, as someone from Cleveland, Ohio, I was very pleased with the Jaguars upsetting the Steelers, both because I despise the Steelers and because I enjoy I have a soft spot in my heart for teams that have struggled the way the Jaguars have for so long. And if they can do this, then there's hope for everyone. Wouldn't you agree, David? Um, I, you know, I don't disagree. Uh, and actually, um, the... So I have my own enmity for the Steelers um, because of uh, their quarterback. Oh, yes. And we were actually having a semi-related conversation. So before Me Too, there was uh, Ben Raplisberger. Oh, yes. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I have not updated my, I have no other reason to have any feelings whatsoever for for pittsburgh um yes, i would like to specify that i don't mind the city itself i only mind the football team right right then right. again people in pittsburgh would not accept that <laughs> as a distinction um i do want to yeah. say an um, an interesting side note on the situation with their quarterback which i agree with you is one of those reasons that i could just never feel happy for them ever when i know right. that that's their quarterback um, 538 actually did a piece um, when the Rams moved to L.A. One of their staff people was um, from uh, St. Louis and mm. was very, very upset about the Rams leaving. And so she had their data guys create this system to figure out what team she should root for now based on a variety of factors. And one of those factors was whether or not they had troubled players who had mistreated women in domestic violence issues. Hmm. And she ended up with the Packers as the number one choice. Um, well, so that that's actually my, I mean, to the extent that I don't go by geographical affiliation based on where I have lived or, you know, am living, the Packers is my team. Right. Oh, mine too. They're, yeah. they're the only publicly owned team. I, exactly. I own a share of them. That's why right after, you do. The I do right after the Cleveland Browns, they're my team. My, my lovely sister got me um, a share of them when they did that um, public offering after they won the Super Bowl a few years back. Mm. So this entitles me to get four tickets every year to go to the shareholders meeting at Lambeau field, which I have actually done. And Green Bay in July is quite nice, and oh, it's wow. actually a really, really amazing experience. Um, it's really cool. Um, but anyway, so the Packers were number one, but number two was the Steelers, who actually had one of the best scores um, for the, having players who didn't have too many personal issues, including domestic violence. Interesting. And this at first is very surprising, but they, they clarify, because it is a surprising result, that the formula they had put together did not adjust for the prominence of the member who had hmm. committed an offense. And so right. apparently, at least at the time they were doing this, the entire rest of the Steelers team had very clean records. Right. But the quarterback, who's the face of the franchise, I mean, that, which that, that's, you know, that, that yeah, is obviously the the franchise, quite yeah. a difficult thing to deal with. Then if you're, if that is one of your priorities, which is that, you know, there's, there's no way not to be rooting for him specifically on the field so right yeah that's but yeah that's a problem i have with with pittsburgh as well and now i am really hoping to see a jaguars vikings super bowl which will be the first ever home super bowl in minnesota i just think 
that would be spectacular. I don't even know that I care who wins at that point because <laughs> I'm just happy for everybody involved. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, as long as Trump is president, we've got to keep racking up these like once in a once in history type things. Um, well, I mean, if you want to if you want to pause for a moment and think about this, what happened in 2004? The Red Sox broke their ancient curse and won the World Series. What happened in tw in 2016? The Chicago Cubs broke their ancient curse and won the World Series and in both years a Republican was elected president. Yeah, well, who, who would then I end up very shortly afterward with very low approval ratings? Breaking, yeah. Well, no, I mean Cleveland's allowed to get it after that. <laughs> of course, Cleveland Cleveland also broke its fifty-year title drought with the Cavs in twenty sixteen. So that's right. Yeah, there's no escaping it. All right. So for those of you just tuning in, this is Sports Talk Radio with David <laughs> Wheel and Charles Bobinger uh, here to discuss all the nuances of what types of blitzes people did in the games with the things and the ball today. <laughs> uh, none of which I actually saw because I cut my cable and the only thing I miss is live sporting events. But man, I miss live sporting events. <laughs> so anyway, today's episode is going to be a little bit different, um, both because this is your nighttime edition of Fear, Honor, and Interest, and because David apparently has some thoughts he wants to share about the most recent Star Wars movie. Now, I too have many thoughts that I wish to share with the entire world about the most recent Star Wars movie. And you should all know that there was a period between the ages of 8 and, let's say, 12, where Star Wars was like my life. It was I was watching Star Wars over and over again. I was watching the cartoon series for droids and Ewoks. I was playing with Star Wars action figures. I played Star Wars video games. I read Star Wars novels. It was all about the Star Wars for me. And uh, man, then the prequels came. <laughs> and they made that. And they, the prequels came the same time they made that book where they killed off Chewbacca. And I was just so mad. I was so mad. So David, uh, before I get a little too emotional here about about Chewie. Um, oh. What, what, what do you have to say about this Childhood new Star Wars movie? disappointment. Well, um, so I've been, uh, yeah, I've been very, you know, so I too, I mean, like many of us, I, I, I like that we started with sports before segueing into uh, Star Wars fandom. We just like to throw the listeners a curveball. That's what we do. As it were. Um, but... Um, you know, so I too was, uh, our curveballs are perfect spirals deeply into, yeah. Uh, ever upwards towards democracy. What's oh, yes. the, what's that, uh, Simpsons quote? Oh yes. Twirling, twirling towards freedom. Right. Exactly. Those are our, those are our curveballs in the pigskin in the grid diamond. Anyway, um, as you know, I, I too was, uh, you know, big star Wars fan and, um, I, you know, I, I've been able to like, I've been able to go to the movies and turn my brain off and enjoy them as I watch them. And then the question is then how long it takes for me to turn my brain back on and start mm -hmm. thinking about them. And, um, with this, with this latest movie, I have been really interested to see this, um, kind of politicized cleavage in responses. Oh, I have where, not caught that part. Yeah. Apparently it's, it's one of these like alt-right social justice warrior type things where, you know, there's a, it, it, it's, it's not universal, but there is a certain amount of bad faith in, and like finger pointing where people who like the movie say that the people who don't, you know, some of the people who like the movie claim that people who don't like the movie don't like it because they are alt-right, you know, women hater people. Uh, and some of the people who, uh, don't like it claim that the people who do like it only like it because they're social justice warrior snowflakes. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting to sort of, to see, 
you know, a way in which responses to the movie have, uh, been politicized in that way. Um, and I, I've just been thinking about the movie a lot because when I saw it, I enjoyed it, you know, so this is And not, when did you see it? Yeah, I mean, I saw it a couple weeks ago. Okay. I saw it opening night so that we're all clear. Okay. Um, and I enjoyed it when I saw it and I think like, you know, I walked out and I was like, I liked it. I didn't have the same sort of shuddering joy that I did walking out of uh, Rogue One. Oh, yeah. Oh, I loved Rogue One. Yeah. I mean, Rogue One was just utterly superb. I'm glad to hear you say that because I don't hear that as common as I would like. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like – I liked it more than Force Awakens, and I was in a minority on that. You need better friends. You need smarter friends. I know. None of them are listening to this podcast, so I can say whatever (laughs) I want about them. (laughs) Just friends who are better at uh, analyzing movies, um, but no, I mean the Force Awakens. Or, um, the Force Awakens was just derivative. I mean, it was right. beautifully it was, done. It was, just, it was just New Hope with modern special effects. Yeah, it was. It was beautifully, beautifully done, but it was uh, utterly derivative as far as a matter of storytelling. Uh, whereas Rogue One was um, both beautiful nestled tightly into the Star Wars aesthetic and thematic feel, but then also introducing um, a very coherent vision of uh, of like the particular kind of storytelling that you know that this particular movie was trying to make. Um, and it, it had a story, it had a perspective on the sort of Star Wars-y grand narrative of the Empire and the Rebellion, uh, which they expressed through, you know, different ways of representing uh, the sort of monolithic, centralized, hegemonic, authoritarian empire against the decentralized, flat, egalitarian, democratic structure of, you know, of, of rebellion, um, you know, so it was, it was both integrated into the grand scope of the Star Wars, um, sort of saga, but then also, you know, very clearly, uh, new and interesting and of itself. So, I mean, I just, and I'm wonderful, just wonderful. Yeah, I have no, no we're going to have a huge spoiler alert on this episode. Um, but I just want to say one of the things that they did that was very bold in that movie is that they didn't come up with a deus ex machina for the characters to survive. Um, yeah. This is a movie where I was, I was watching this movie. I loved the characters. I thought that they did a great job designing the characters. I thought, um, I thought that uh, Jin Erso was a really fascinating character. I thought there was a lot they could have done with her. I thought the droid was amazing. Yeah. Um, K2SO, I think his name was. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. One of the most entertaining droids in a Star Wars property since HK-47 in Knights of the Old Republic, which if you have not played, you should because he's amazing. Um, and uh, I thought all of that was great, and I was sad to see them go at the end, but it wouldn't have fit the vision of that movie if they didn't. Like, that was that was a, a grimmer look at the world that Star Wars took place in, that was a movie that demonstrated that, you know, you've got these rebels. Well, some of the stuff that they do to fight the Empire is going to hurt innocent civilians. Some of the stuff they do is going to be made with poor judgment. Sometimes they'll choose a target that is not a good target. Sometimes there will be extremists who splinter off and cause all of these other problems. Yeah. Um, And something that I thought that it did spectacularly well, which the original trilogy had a little bit of, but not, um, and the new ones haven't had, have done, They've handled it a little differently. I love when the Imperial officers are squabbling amongst each other because it sort of reminds you that this evil, you know, monolithic empire with this rigid hierarchy still has people who are careerists who are sniping at each other for who gets the credit for something that yeah. they've done. Yeah. You saw that in the first movie with the whole part where Vader does the, I find your lack of faith disturbing. I should not have even attempted a Vader, a Vader voice without preparing. Um, but where he, he does that, you know, that was, that was in a scene where they're squabbling. You've got the guys who are arguing about, well, you know, your fleet is what you're concerned about, but this station is what we're concerned about. You've got the, the different branches of the military arguing right, with each other. Right. 
Right. In Empire Strikes Back, you get to see a lot of scenes of the sort of, not just the little bits of sniping that they do, but how when Vader kills somebody, the next guy becomes Admiral and and how that leaves them in a precarious job state. That was all very fascinating stuff. And Rogue One brought that back because the sniping between Tarkin and uh, Director Krennic, I thought was spectacular. The way that they yeah. were very catty to each other, the way that they jostled for credit. I thought that that was actually a really interesting look at you know, the interior workings of the Empire, whereas the newer movies, I mean, Force Awakens and Last Jedi, they've given us, like, people kind of arguing at each other in the First Order, but it's not like that. Well, it's just sort of people being obnoxious. Yeah, I well, I mean, a, I mean, so this has now become a much bigger discussion about the whole, you know, post-Disney Right, uh, sort of direction of the franchise as opposed to thoughts on the the last Jedi movie movie, um, but you know it's actually it's actually important to do it this way because a lot of the themes that you mention are issues that are uh, you know that highlight the problems in the Last Jedi or in the Force Awakens because this last aspect that you're talking about there is zero world building in right. either the force awakens or you know especially the uh, the last jedi where the you know one of the things that i think one of the approaches uh to the original trilogy that gave so much uh you know so many handholds for fans to go crazy about was you know the, the 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 dialogue along the lines of what you're describing on the one hand, and then things like, you know, did the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs, right. where it's like, it just refers to something that, um, you, you know, if you if you listen to that kind of thing as an adult, you're either like, what the hell does that mean, or, um, you know that doesn't make sense because that's not the right measure of time versus, you know, what you're, you're, you're listening to it very literally. Whereas if you're, you know, a child, if you're a younger person, your brain's more able to just in, just take that and imprint it and then layer meanings on top of it. And so you just, you're ready to see the whole world that is implied, you know, behind a line like that. And, uh, you know, they really seemed to be gesturing towards that bigger world that it was behind um, everything that is actually presented to you. But then in, you know, these new movies, it's like, where did the, I mean, for, for everything, you know, it's sort of a bold move to go in The Last Jedi to the step of actually talking about, like, political economy and right. who is making these weapon systems that the rebels or the empire are using uh that's you know it's new to address that so explicitly hmm. well sort um, of i mean in the ancillary materials that i read so much of as a kid we knew all about Sinar fleet systems producing the uh, tie fighter and kuat drive yards producing the star destroyers and so on and so on yes i can well, see as your you expression said, that you're like yeah yeah ancillary material ancillary materials um, you know in the movies themselves that sort of thing was uh You know, it wasn't, um, you didn't go into that, but, but in the earlier, uh, movies, you had the sense of the vast empire and the empire is the incumbent political power. And you just generally understand right. like, okay, they're the ones who run everything. And then the rebellion is, I mean, you don't know where the, you know, where the shipyards that are supplying the rebellion are, but. Yeah, they make certain references. You know, Alderaan is probably supplying a lot of it. Hey, Alderaan, kind of they but... said they had no weapons in Alderaan. Well, I mean, clearly this was a lie. But... <laughs> hey, the main had no weapons on it. Neither did the Lusitania. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Oh, man, this is this is getting quite obscure. In any case, <laughs> in any case, um, the, uh, you know, with The Force Awakens, or I'm sorry, with uh, The Last Jedi, on the one hand, you, you have this attempt to to more explicitly deal with questions like that. But on the other, you know, this like totally insane 
disregard for continuity in the sense that like the empire was destroyed where does the first order come from you know the first order's uh giant death star you know bigger than the death star death star the star right. killer base is destroyed and they've suffered a grievous blow from which there's no indication of how exactly they're going to recover but then within moments you know because these movies follow on one another very closely yeah very closely uh you know within moments suddenly it's the rebels who are uh or the you know the sort of republic forces that are they're called the resistance now the resistance oh my god well this is this is a this is a that's one of the more difficult to talk about aspects of the film because I mean, I didn't, I still, enjoy, I enjoyed the movie, but the politics really, it really felt like watching like Soviet propaganda. <laughs> like the, the, the political message was so overt that it was, it was really not like watching a movie. It was like watching propaganda and I still enjoyed it when I was watching it. Um, but this was one of the aspects that as I, as I thought back on what, it actually meant and what it was that I saw um, just kept, kept uh, creeping back up. And I, let me just take this moment now and focus on again, the last Jedi to, to say that I, I really think that the last Jedi was like a one movie that was like an hour and a half long. That was one of the best movies in the, in the series and close to a true masterpiece. And then that movie was buried under an hour of just uh, superfluous, tendentious. Right. The entire trip to the Monte Carlo planet could have been eliminated. I know why it's there. It's there to dem to make their point about weapons. It's there for them to make a mistake with the codes. It's there for them to uh, or trusting the code guy. It's there for them to introduce the little kids who can get excited at the end. But we right. could have done those in some other way that would not have sidetracked the movie for so long. Well, and it's even worse than that because it actually contains one of the elements that I find um, to be part of the part of the the brush with true greatness that this movie uh, actually mm -hmm. performs, which is to say, so you know, this movie. I mean, the, the major thing. The major challenge with this movie is, okay, the previous movie was a pure nostalgia uh, rehash. You know, it's just about money. They're going to make back that $4 billion that Disney spent to buy Lucasfilm. And they're going to get people ready and excited. And so they just played it safe and did nothing new. And I mean, they killed Han, but like pretty much just, you know, a rehash of episode four. I mean, killing uh, Han was a rehash of killing Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, it just, it was the same scene. Well, right. Yeah. This is my point. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, so then in, in the new, so in this movie, it's like, okay, where, what direction are we going to go? Are we just going to give, you know, the, uh, Empire Strikes Back, back, or are we going to do something different? And they, to their credit, in certain ways, really try to do something new in a variety of ways. So one of the things I found, so they, they simultaneously, or, you know, Ryan Johnson, simultaneously goes in a radically new direction, as well as doubling down on the concept of eternal recurrence and cyclical generational sort of balancing cycles um, and created this tension that was really uh, wonderful. I thought in certain ways, um, very successful, very successfully uh, displayed. So, 
it struck me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, it struck me as um, a movie that is recharacterizing the essential nature of the force itself. That in previous movies had been basically a like a Manichaean battle of good and evil. The you know, the light and the dark right. were very straightforward, like good and evil. Um, whereas in this movie, there were many references to the light and dark side of the force actually really being like two manifestations of a single force. And that, um, you know, the, the reference was made that, you know, Snoke said that as Kylo rose in power, like the force summoned Ray to balance him. Right. You know, and so that creates a, a conception of the force as more of like a yin and yang fundamental, fundamentally balanced unity, which takes the normative element, you know, the sort of moralizing element of dark side, bad light side, good away and creates this concept of the cycle. The trip to the casino planet actually reinforced that in certain, in this, in this way where you had the, um, you know, Benicio del Cotoro's character, DJ or whatever, the hacker, uh, talk about how, you know, the rebels, the empire, whichever side's up now, it doesn't matter. You know, rich people are going to sell their weapons. The poor people are going to suffer, uh, you know, the, the collateral damage of war. And what does it actually matter? You know, it was a really bold move because it put the empire and the rebels on a moral equivalency, which could have, if they had had the guts to actually right. explore this point, could have become incredibly interesting. You know, they could have, they could have just gone a micron further you know, in this direction and shown, you know, maybe what rebellion actually means is the site the sort of thing that they talked about in, um, Rogue One, where, you know, a rebel in order to achieve the mission will kill innocent people or allow innocent people to die in the crossfire. Or, you know, if a rebel needs to, you know, if a rebel unit needs to, um, uh, you know, survive in the field in a certain, you know, for a certain length of time, they'll re requisition, uh, supplies from innocent people lead to them potentially starving or, you know, killing their livestock or whatever. Like they'll do what they need to do to win. And the ends justify the means, which all of a sudden makes them much closer to the empire. And, um, you know, you don't have to, again, you don't have to go all that far in this direction and like end up with the movie kind of resting on the idea that the empire and the, and the rebellion are the same. You don't have to go that far, but if there was an even, you know, if they, if they had the guts to just take one more step in that direction that they were clearly hinting, they were moving in, you know, that they, that they in fact did move in uh, on the sort of supernatural structural element of the force itself and the recharacterization of the nature of the force. They did do that for the force and then they chickened out in doing that for the political structure that is obviously analogous to the force of, you know, the light and the dark side of the force map onto the rebellion and the empire. And so they've rehabilitated the empire, or I'm sorry, they've rehabilitated the dark side of the force as sort of a natural, uh, you know, one half of the equation as it were. Um, but then they didn't, they didn't do it for the empire. Right. You know, instead, and this is partly where the politics come in because they were, you know, it's, it's hard not to see it this way that they were just ramming home this message of, you know, uh, this is what toxic masculinity looks like. Um, you know, this is, um, these, you know, 
these sort of fashy men who insist on dominating one another. And, um, you know, that's what the empire is. It's nothing other than that. And, um, so there was this, there was a, there was, it came so close in this element, uh, you know, it came so close to saying something really new and interesting about the world that had been so lovingly created through all these movies. And yet here was a, here was a bold new take on it, but then it stalls out halfway through. Um, you know, and then there were other elements in, in the movie where that, that concept of like the dualism, you know, in pairs, uh, manifested in, in, in ways that I thought were great. So like a lot of people shat on the, um, the like opening scene where, uh, Poe does that, like, does the prank call the prank call. I loved the prank call, but you know what made me mad in that scene What <laughs> was dropping bombs in space. <laughs> yeah. Now I guess there was some, just some people like, Oh no, no, don't you, they were magnetically charged to do whatever. And that magnet apparently went straight to the other ship and not the ship they were in. And for some reason they couldn't just launch all of these bombs from a distance, but they were just trying to recreate a world war two bomber scene and they just didn't care whether it made sense or not. Yeah, no, I, 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 sort of agree with that you know i'm not going to nitpick about the dropping thing like i obviously agree with you i thought it was dumb that they like needed to drop them i thought it was dumber that like once they sent in the bombers they didn't like realize that some of them would get shot down (laughs) you know and leia was like oh my god our fleet is destroyed and it's like aren't you a general don't you understand that right you calculate the, the battle of Yavin where like three or four ships come back out of all the ones that they send there. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, right. and for all the, and for all the sort of fetishization of, uh, you know, Luke, um, being sort of traumatized by his failure. Like there was no indication that like, if, if, if that had been, if the point that you had just made was explicitly made for Leah, that like she was fundamentally incapable of serving as a battle commander because she was, um, you know, after seeing so many people die in these previous battles, uh, unwilling to implement a strategic plan where you accept certain losses in order to achieve a, a greater, you know, fundamental goal. That'd have been interesting, but, you know, but as it was, you know, Leo was the supremely wise commander, uh, with, um, you know, with, uh, Vice Admiral Hodor, uh, as her. Haldo. Hodor Hodor is from Game of Thrones. I think Hodor. Oh, okay. I see. No, but she. Because like Hodor, she was incapable of just saying what her plan was, which could have saved (laughs) a lot of trouble. I, I didn't make I didn't make that connection, but that is yeah that is really brilliant. Not only I mean she's obviously Vice Admiral Hodor because she, you know, held back the enemy. Right, she held sacrificed herself to to hold the door. But yeah, I mean if if she could only have just spat it out, then yeah. everything well, would have been the TV critic Alan Seppenwall, One of his most hated plot devices in any television show is when. You have an, a plot element that comes up simply because characters are too stupid to say obvious things to each other. Like yeah. They can't just say something like that when it would be so easy and there's no compelling reason not to. But the writers are lazy, so they want to have them lie to each other and cause a problem. Um, right. And I want to, you know, I, well, this is this is what. So let me just say though that um, so a lot of people shat on the like conference call scene, uh, you know, the the prank call. Yeah. Thing, oh, I love that. Just thought part. it was dumb. It, well, fitted, it was in fitting with, was the, with A New Hope where Han does that when they're in the Death Star. When he's like, oh, we're all fine now. Everything's good. How are you? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't pick that up. Yeah. I thought it was like kind of dumb, but I didn't really care when it was happening. But it actually became brilliant. I realized it was brilliant uh, later on because, again, it's part of this duality where um, Poe attacks the psychology of Hux, who is a robotic, by-the-book, bureaucratic 
tool of the empire. And he said, you know, he goes through this formal address issue of like, you know, he's, he's going through the protocol. I am waiting to speak to general Hux and Hux, because he is this creature of the system is incapable of responding fluidly to that. And it, you know, it, it stymies him in that moment. He's flummoxed by it. What is the corollary to this? Luke attacking Kylo Ren's psychology right. at the end. You know, in, in this in this case, it's precisely the opposite. Luke is attacking uh, Kylo's emotional, intuitive, you know, paranoid um, style. But, you know, Luke understands Kylo's psychology. He knows how to get into his head. And he launches that, you know, psychological attack in order to buy the Rebels' time. And it's perfect. I mean, it's one is the beginning, one is the end. One is the, you know, Rebels versus the Empire. One is the light side versus the dark side. It's beautifully, ba it's beautifully balanced. It's clearly intentional. And it's, you know, it's very subtle in its own way. Um, you know, and so things like that, uh, show that they are, I mean, that Johnson was clearly aware of this linkage, you know, you have the supernatural light side, dark side, and then you have the, you know, political military, uh, rebellion and empire. And again, it's like, okay, if you could fucking do that, then why can't you, you know, go through with this. Uh, process of, you know, showing the complexity of, you know, what a rebellion actually entails, especially because that was signaled in, in Rogue One. Um, and then, you know, along well, those lines, I mean, there's the element in there too. The last scene is so exciting because the little kid pulls the broom to him with the force and starts pretending his broom is a lightsaber. But that's actually a very dark scene if you think about it, because the little kid—it's like now the little kid gets conscripted into this war too. Yeah, yeah. And how likely exactly. is he to be another one of the war's victims? Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, yeah. So I've got some thoughts too. Um, we're, we're sort of closing in near the end, so I don't have. Um, I, having been, as I said, such a long-time Star Wars fan, I have so many thoughts about the new movies that um, I could never get through in, in an entire podcast. It was just me talking for a couple hours. But, <laughs> um, I mean, I want to say that uh, the, the new movies have made me more appreciative of George Lucas's vision, yeah. which I feel was, when you look back at the prequels now, they look better to me after the new movies have come out, not necessarily on all of their filmmaking elements the parts that were bad about them are still kind of bad about them but yeah. but it does it does make me appreciate the ways in which this was part of the same coherent world that he had set up and the ways in which um you know the original trilogy is oh, sorry the prequels are basically about richard nixon if you listen to his commentary mm. that you know it's about he, he came up with the idea for star wars when people were saying maybe nick they should amend the constitution's so nixon could run for a third term and that's all that stuff about the supreme chancellor being able to stay in office past he's, the time when he's supposed to leave and, and that right. stuff and and the question he's asking is why is it much like the french with napoleon why do they so enthusiastically fight for democracy and then give it up as soon as somebody strong comes along. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a timely message for a lot of people voting for a certain authoritarian minded president we have right now. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, so as a, as a devoted star Wars fan, the thing that has upset me about the new movies, it was there in force awakens, but it was exacerbated by last Jedi because last Jedi made it clear. They weren't going to try to um, correct it. Mm. Um, the issue in Force Awakens, if you think, what is the, so, you know, if you're me and you grew up on the original trilogy and you loved Star Wars so much, and I read a lot of the ancillary materials back then, what is the original trilogy about? What is the fundamental story of Star Wars? Mm. What, what is accomplished at the end of Return of the Jedi that makes this a trilogy of movies with a beginning, a middle and an end? Well, I think there are about four things that primarily matter. It's the rebels defeat the empire. Vader goes back from the dark side to the light side. Luke, and this line I think was in one of the 
books, like the novelization of Return of the Jedi, I can't remember where exactly it was from, Obi-Wan tells Luke not to think of himself as the last of the old Jedis, but the first of the new. So, like, they explicitly mm-hmm. were saying, you're not the last Jedi. <laughs> you're the first new <laughs> one. And here, like, the title of the movie tears that apart. And then finally, like, on the character side, Han and Leia end up together. Well, what do the new movies do? The Empire yeah. is suddenly back with no explanation. It just is. It's just back. Right. Right. Um, you know, Luke has failed to start the new Jedi, and he's now the last Jedi. So all right. of that went nowhere. Um, you know, Vader still went to the light side, but his memory is being used not by his son, who doesn't really make mm. references to, like, oh, here's what father did, you know, communing with father's spirit or anything like that. Instead, his memory is entirely used by Kylo as the right. evil force. And it's almost like – and it's treated as though nobody well, ever more, told – And moreover, um, Luke doesn't even remember that he was willing to – risk everything to find the the little spark of light in the dead dark soul of you know Darth right. Vader who was this sort of bogeyman for the entire universe right and yeah. and was willing to kill his nephew you know at the well, I think the, first, the implication like, was supposed to be suspicion. that he could feel the good spark in Vader and he and he checked and did not find it in Kylo which I think was supposed to be the ooh moment but I don't know that wasn't made clear enough regardless you know, it's it's like nobody told Kylo that Vader decided the light side was better at the end. You know, <laughs> like that just didn't come up in any of his training. Right. Um, and then, yeah, you know, that true. final element, Han and Leia end up together. Well, at the start of Force Awakens, they're not together anymore. For why? Right. We don't know. Some reason. So the right. problem that I have with it from that perspective is that it takes everything the original trilogy did and just throws it away without earning it. Right. It, it would be one thing if they had a movie that establishes the rise of the First Order or any explanation for what happened instead it's just well we liked the original trilogy's you know setting so we're going to go back to that setting but we're not going to earn it we're just going to say the empire is back because of course it is we're just going to say you know luke is still the last jedi because of course he is you know han and leia are just apart together all of these things they're just going to and because we want it to be a band of scrappy rebels we're going to change the name to resistance and for absolutely no discernible reason the new empire is going to be called the first order much like Microsoft made the Xbox One be like the third or fourth Xbox. Um, <laughs> now, I'm told by people who still follow such things, because I lar- I gave up on Star Wars novels when the prequels came out, less because of the prequels themselves than because they, that's when they started the Yuuzhan Vong War, and that was just dumb. But, um, but uh, you know, I used to read the books a lot, and people who read the books tell me that um, – there are books that like carefully trace out the origins of the first order and here's mm. who Hux was. And his father came up with a stormtrooper program and he was mistreated as a kid. And that's mm. why he's so mean now. And, you know, here's the actual story behind that captain phasma that we kept playing up and then never mm-hmm. used. And that actually just made me kind of more angry because back when I played world of Warcraft, one of the things that, I mean, the reason you stop playing a game like that is because you can't, lightly play a game like that you can't come home from work and play like 30 minutes and then go to bed um you know but but i mean atop the other issues that it had one of the things that started to drive me crazy about it that alienated me from the game was that you know i'd played the previous games in the series and whenever a new expansion came out suddenly the big relevant character that you're talking to is some guy that i've never heard of and i'm like i've played every mission in all of these games and I have no idea who this person is. And some yeah. would say, oh, well, it was because it was a comic book that established they're actually the most powerful person in the world. They had this whole backstory. I was like, but that's not in this game. This is the game I'm playing. Well, right. I feel that way about um, I feel that way about the new Star Wars movies. You can't just shunt important stuff to the ancillary materials. You know, the original trilogy did this a little bit. They had stuff like if you didn't see the holiday special, you didn't know who Boba Fett was in Empire Strikes Back. You know, there's mm-hmm. really no background for him. He's kind of the equivalent of Captain Phasma in that sense, where he shows up, is, you know, demonstrated to be, is, they claim he's badass, and then he just sort of dies randomly. Um, but, but you know, so so you can have... But, I mean, that's on a different that. level. That's right. on a different order, as you might say, mm-hmm. than, like, Snoke. You well, know, yeah, like that's where I was going. Some random, some random bounty hunter who's, you know, good at what he does is... Yeah someone you can just winkle out of nothing yeah, as Snoke opposed was to unacceptable that would make this me... like crazy, you know, crazily powerful, uh, you know, not only force wielder, but also, um, head of this massive organization 
Right. You know, just and like, with no explanation. And with zero explanation. I yeah. um so that was a thing where when when in the scene where I mean, with they, disdain with, with disdain. disdain for the idea of giving an explanation. Right. Exactly. It was yeah. the movie was this this is I mean, you know, again, it sounds like just quibbling when you talk about dropping the bombs in space and whether they were magnetically charged or whatever, or how that would make sense when they're being dropped from a metal ship. But um the thing or why you even need the ship at all if they're that magnetically charged. But anyway, right. um I mean, some of that gets the the fact that in a quote-unquote realistic form, you wouldn't have these space battleships fighting each other. You'd be launching atomic right. weapons at light speed right. from across the universe. But right. um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so the thing with Snoke was in the scene where they kill him, I was like, oh, yeah, please kill him now. That would actually be a really great like twist for all of this, and I would like that, and that would be good in some ways. But at the same time, I was also aware that – but if you do kill him, that will have made all of the debates over who is he and where did he come from – it would just be insulting us. It would just be a slap in the face of like, we don't even, it's like, you, oh, you, you spent the last two years really delving into all of this and trying to pick out every little clue about who he might be. Well, we don't even care enough to tell you, like, we don't even have an idea. And that's something that I do. I find is a little, um, it's a JJ Abrams issue to a certain extent, because, um, you know, he was involved with a pilot for lost and there was a bunch of stuff where people go, oh, what does the polar bear mean? What does X mean? What does Y mean? And it turns out that when he wrote the pilot, he didn't have an idea. He just wrote a bunch of stuff, and then they were going to figure it out later. And that's, yeah. well, that's kind I of mean, dumb. I don't, I don't necessarily object. Like, I also, um, again, in part because when I was watching the movie, I was, in t I was sensing this direction they were going, where they were, like I said before, simultaneously, you know, burning the past and um, doubling down on the, on the hero of the thousand faces right. concept where these cycles are eternal, you know, the light and the dark, you know, each side summons the hero of the other side to balance itself. Right. Um, you know, that these, that these forces play out eternally. And so in that sense, um, you know, it's, it is fully within that thematic framework for Ray to come from nothing and right. for her to, for her parents to be nobodies. And yeah, that part I had less of a problem with because that's at yeah. least a useful twist. Yeah, no, I, I liked that. And I, um, and I didn't really care that much when I was watching the movie about Snoke either. Right. Like, um, it was a good you know, scene on its own. Well, first of all, fantastic scene. Yeah, it was a fantastic scene. Fantastic scene. And actually, um, uh, you know, a scene that was so good that it unfortunately introduced other problems for me with how Kylo was characterized, hmm. which is to say someone who is so in command of himself that he's able to play this long con and trick Snoke is the same character who goes completely off his rocker, um, well, if you view it not as a yeah. long con, but an impulsive move, then that could explain why he hides it from Snoke. I mean, but yeah, but so, the interesting like, well, twist there like too said, is it that it's a problem. It's not an insurmountable problem. But it, you what know. did Vader do to go back to the light side? Killed his evil master. Kylo Ren kills his evil master and then doesn't go to the light side, which is an interesting, you know, spin on what had happened before. It's kind of a right. criticism of the extent to which. You know, Vader does all of this horrible stuff, and then he's then he kills somebody, and that somehow makes him go back to the light side. I mean, it's really not about that. It's about his relationship to his son that brings him back to feeling love again for the first time. But you know, on a surface level, it's love kind of silly. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which we talked about more in your Wonder Woman review um, about narrative structure. But what I think is fascinating here is that both both of us here are largely criticizing this movie on the basis of its narrative structure. You know, a lot of other people you can talk about, well, this is a well-done scene. This is a bad scene. We've even said, you know, you could have cut X amount of, of time from this. But when we talk about the 88 steps of the hero's journey that they follow closely in the original Star Wars trilogy. And then this movie has, like, the idea of that path from having seen the original trilogy. But it doesn't seem as familiar with the source material that created the original trilogy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, in part because... Uh, Ray is so sort of fully formed in her power from the beginning. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Wonder Woman and you beat me to the punch because of course oh, yeah. there was no way I was going to talk about a movie and not mention Wonder Woman. 
Uh, again, though, in a way that, you know, to me, uh, this movie, for all its faults, did one thing much, 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 much better than Wonder Woman, which is um, the display of Daisy Ridley's body. Mm. So Daisy Ridley is a very petite woman. You know, if you see her as like a real human person in reality, wearing normal clothes, you know, she's a size negative four or whatever the hell, um, you know, very, very, uh, slender, you know, very, uh, sort of conventionally attractive, slim woman. Uh, however, as Ray, her costuming, in my view, is designed to make her appear more sort of sturdy and mm. strong, even stocky than you would otherwise think that she is. And you see this in her sort of upper chest and shoulders, you know, the way that her, um, like the, like arm wrappings, yeah, you know, end at her sort of uh, end at her biceps. So they display her upper bicep and her shoulders, uh, and then her sort of, uh, tank top thing, you know, similarly sort of I mean, the, the overall effect there is to, uh, highlight a kind of, a, you know, for this very petite woman, a very thick, powerful chest. Uh, and then similarly, her pants, um, you know, show her calves as kind of bulging out of her. You know, she has these sort of capri pant things and these little boots. And, you know, in, in multiple scenes, uh, the effect is that her, you know, her calf muscles are sort of bulging out of her, uh, costume. And so, you know, these are choices like costuming is, is one of the choices that is, you know, made to, to present a character in a certain way. And they take this woman who is very petite and obviously, you know, um, I'm sure part of it is just that her physiology has changed. You know, her physique has probably changed since she was training for the action scenes in this movie versus now that she's just, you know, going on tour or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, but part of this was a intentional choice to present her as a, you know, as sort of the, the most physically powerful version of her body that she can mm. have. Um, and that contrasts in my view, extremely positively with this, um, you know, utterly abysmal wonder woman, uh, who is the, you know, the naive who is also the ultra wise Amazon war leader and the runway model, you know, willowy, conventionally beautiful, slim woman who is also, you know, this powerful warrior. And it's just, it's just part of this just compounded series of lies that women are told, um, you know, these crazy double standards, you know, double, triple, quadruple standards that women have to live up to, um, and, you know, the, and the politicization of their bodies that like, if Wonder Woman wanted to earn, you know, the praise that it wrapped itself in, and of course, you know, who am I to tell? I mean, a lot of women like the movie and I obviously can't, you know, second guess their reaction to it. But, you know, my take. You heard it here, um, folks. David is mansplaining to you why you didn't like Wonder <laughs> yeah, Woman. Right. Well, I mean, as someone who, you know, has uh, significant, you know, body issues from childhood, like I went through, you know, crafting my own body. Um, and you can't see this over the screen, but David is perfectly sculpted. <laughs> we call him Michelangelo's. Uh, yeah, right. In college. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, but if you wanted to show, if you actually wanted to earn these accolades, you know, show what a, what, a, what an athletic woman actually would like a, like most real normal ish women who are athletic, what they look like, you know, they have among other things, often powerful calves. And this is the thing that I'm fixating on with Daisy Ridley, the way that they, you know, showed her character. But, um, you know, to me, that was a, that was something that they earned in 
in Star Wars. And it was very subtle. It wasn't a big deal, right. but it was present. Well, you know, this is supposed to be a physically powerful me... character, and there's a, there are actually signs of that, whereas, you know, Wonder Woman is just this sort of willowy, beautiful right. model. I mean, she's literally a model. The actress yeah. was a model. Um, you know, not... And it's not a not even a remotely accurate presentation of like what a powerful woman's body looks like. Well, to that point, um, some number of years ago in a summer Olympics, I don't remember who it was, but there was a female swimmer who was getting basically body shamed mm. for not looking right the way people thought she was, so right. thought she should look, and she won the gold. And right. it's like, yeah. it's like you. <laughs> You won an Olympic gold medal. Your body looks exactly the way it's supposed to look. Your exactly. body's purpose is to win that gold medal. She exactly. focused all of her energies on winning that gold Beautiful medal. Put, yeah. And the body that wins the gold medal is the correct body. That is how you are supposed to look. And she had that body. Right. It's like, would you have preferred <laughs> if she if she got the bronze but looked a little hotter for you? Like, what? where are you going with this? Right. So, I mean, you know, that's a situation where, you know, your your body gets to do the talking in the swimming pool, and it did, and she won. So, exactly. take that, yep. haters. <laughs> Probably. Hopefully there aren't that many haters listening. You know, if there's one benefit to having a very small... Well, I mean, haters of her, not haters of us. No, 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 but my point is, uh, you know, if there's any benefit to having, a, you know, the small and loyal audience that we that we do, it's that hopefully there aren't any haters in the ranks i imagine at least five of our 10 listeners are just hate listening <laughs> what a thought yep they've got what pictures of us that they, they're all so they're all they're just my throwing ex- darts yes they're all yeah. my exes and they've all got pictures of me on the door and they're just throwing <laughs> darts the whole time oh man um yeah i'm just kidding i don't think any of my exes ever had pictures of me <laughs> they've burned them all yep I feel it. It's like it's a very powerful sort of um, kinetic thing that happens to me. Like thousands of millions of voices, voices crying out crying in terror, and then suddenly silenced. Suddenly silenced. Yeah, that's uh, that's what it's like for me. Uh man, let's stop talking about women and start going back to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about something I understand. <laughs> We should uh, we should drink and, and podcast more often. We You're should drink and podcast. Get into that sort of weepy confessional. I should bring more than one beer with me when I do. It should be like yeah. a, we should do we should do like, um, oh I don't know what a good occasion for it would be, but um, find a night where we just have like we each have a bottle of wine separately and we just like we just talk about feelings and, yeah. and how that relates to Thucydides and all of that stuff and. You know, yeah, I'd uh, I'd pick February fourteenth. Does that fall on a Sunday this year? I I wouldn't. You know. you can lament that your woman is out of town. Oh no, it's like a Wednesday. You can lament that your woman is out of town, and I can lament that I'm alone and sad. Yeah, this is a whole different kettle of worms. But yeah, the real question you know. is, when I edit this, when am I going to cut us off? <laughs> like you don't know have you even listened to the last few podcasts uh yeah i have so you've seen I, where I, I like i give us cold opens from random i like stuff. i like those yeah. <laughs> okay. i was gonna i was gonna say uh i was gonna mention that that i i like the that style i would just like to like put something in there where you're gonna have to listen to it so you understand what came out <laughs> oh, yeah boy. this is some potentially rich terrain but yeah we it's are kind of it's a rich vein well, um, it's trained for that kind of weird, quirky, uh, cold open. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. For those of you who are not super familiar with our process, and you're probably not hearing this now because I'm probably going to go back and cut this off five minutes ago. But um, when we record the show, we usually talk for like half an hour, sometimes to an hour in advance to sort of warm up and talk about what we're going to talk about on the show. And there are usually some really great lines that get lost in all of that. And I don't want those lines to be lost. So I save them and I save and I put them in for cold opens. Can't let my genius go forgotten. So in what I may go back and put in is the opening line. Um, what I was going to use is the opening line for this, except David had seen it already. And we were talking about football 
you see, yesterday the Eagles managed to somehow triumph over the Falcons. And I said that I was surprised because normally, especially in the wintry months, I would have expected the Eagles to give us a good King Wentzless loss. I'm not going to give you what you want, Charles. <laughs> okay, there's our opener. <laughs> me saying that, and then you just like pause, and then I'm not going to give you what you want. <laughs> it's like, also, that's what she said. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what she's saying more and more, I hope. I'm not going to give you what you want. Me too. No, well, oh, right? I'm saying it rather than, uh, yeah. you know, rather than like silently. Oh, believe me, nobody ever silent. <laughs> Nobody ever refused to say no to me. Well, not to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> he says the generic she, not the she yeah, that I was with. Sorry, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was, yeah. All right, well, I'm going to cut off the recording <laughs> here. And this will be, I don't know what this is going to look like when I post it. Oh, man. We'll see. All right. Yeah, glorious. <laughs>